Well, I speak on behalf of all of Cornerstone. Um, good job, Francis, and the Czech team. Welcome back. And we are thrilled to read your reports of God's work at, at Czech Republic with the Smiths and uh, the Carnells. And it's, it's no joke ministering at Czech Republic. As soon as you land, you have to shift gears and get ready to go. And uh, I heard some people who are preparing to sign up for the summer, they're uh, exercising and working out and trying to get physically fit because they know, understand just the physical rigors of ministry overseas. And you're seeing your faces a Friday night. I could just tell physically you were tired, you were spent. An 18-hour flight, there was a delay in, in, in Canada and there's a long layover and Physically, you guys look spent, but spiritually, um, you guys look so happy and uh, full of joy. And uh, um, I was really a little envious, knowing that just what a wonderful time you must have had with our missionaries and one and one another. Uh, what a joy to live for Christ, to follow Him, and also to serve Him. Our applications for summer missions will be coming out. Um, next week, so be in prayer and prayerfully consider um, serving our Lord this summer in a foreign land. Um, I had an opportunity to fellowship with a, <clears throat> one of the brothers of our church this week, and it was a real sweet time of, of uh, fellowship and prayer, and uh, he was telling me why he appreciates our church, why he loves Cornerstone. He was telling me that most churches uh, teach and help people how to live. Most churches are here to teach people how to be good workers, have a good family, have success in life, find fulfillment. He was telling me that he appreciates Cornerstone because Cornerstone teaches people and helps people to die. Die to self, um, helps people to decrease so that Christ might increase in our lives, helps people to deny themselves, carry the cross, and follow after Him. He was telling me that He wants to die to Himself, and He's thankful that He's at a church that's helping Him die. I thought about that and thought it was very insightful and that it's so true. That is, um, what Christ calls us to, to come and die. The wonderful cross, oh the wonderful cross, bids me to come and die so that I might find the way to truly live. And uh, um, that's the road that I'm on as a Christian, the road, the road that all the leaders are on, and that's the road that our church is on. And I know it's difficult, Bob and I are talking this week, and it's hard for us to die to ourselves. Um, but what an encouragement that we have a church that we're dying together. He was also talking to me about <clears throat> our sermon last week and he was explaining to me his insights from John 14. And this happens once in a while. He understood the sermon better than I taught it. You know, he understood the, the Word of God in John 14 and my sermon better than I articulated it. And <clears throat> we're talking about John 14:21 when Christ said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, He is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. The promise of Christ, that he will manifest himself personally. This is not talking about the second coming, but this is talking about the church age. 
that during the church age that Christ himself will come and abide with believers. He will reveal himself to believers in a personal, experiential way. And how will this happen? How will this occur? You know, something that's very popular in Christianity for some time, especially today, is this intimacy with Christ. Having this personal relationship with Christ. And how does that happen? When I was in college, I read a book about a guy. And he always walked around with his hand like this. And he always did. And because he was walking around because he was holding Jesus. And he was walking around with Jesus. And I remember reading that and go, wow, what a godly man. You know, he has such a real close, intimate relationship with Jesus. that he's always walking around with Jesus, right? You know, um, read a book about... Praying in a certain posture, and that's how you develop intimacy with Christ. When you're petitioning Christ, you pray with your palms up. And then when you're listening to Christ, you pray with your palm down. And that's how you experience Christ. Or, or maybe you go to the mountains, and you spend overnight. And I've done this. You, know, you go to the mountains, you know, these Korean churches, they dig a hole in a, in a mountain, and they have a little light bulb, and you pray there all night, and... You, you experience Christ in a personal way. Or I think Christian music is all the rage, right? Like people experience all these, I don't know, God is my boyfriend kind of songs, these love songs to Jesus. And we sing these songs and we experience Christ. I read an article years ago about how this girl experienced God listening to you 2 you know, where the streets have no name and she experiences God. And Are these the ways to have intimacy with Christ? What John fourteen twenty one says, that the way to intimacy with Christ is through obedience to Him, to His words, prompted by love for Him. That's how we experience Christ. That's how we come to know Christ, in a personal way. That's how we have a relationship with Christ, by obeying Him, because we love Him. And that is why Christians, we have this almost narcissistic passion to obey Christ. We have this desire to suffer and sacrifice and deny ourselves, What's the payoff there? Why would Christians want to do that? Because we understand the secret that when we obey, it hurts physically, but spiritually, we experience Christ. The sweetness of a relationship with the risen Lord. That's why we go witnessing. That's why we go with missions. Why? Because when we're there and we're obeying Christ, we, we sense His nearness, we sense His presence, the joy of knowing our Lord. I mean, if you're a Christian, look back upon your life and consider your highlights, your spiritual markers. When you were close to Christ, it wasn't these other things. It was when you obeyed at a personal cost. It cost you something. You had to sacrifice. You, were, you obeyed the Lord, His Word. And then, at that time, your eyes were open, illumined, and Christ revealed Himself to you. And you experienced that. and Therefore, that was a high point in your Christian walk. That's why we want to obey Christ. That's what Paul said in Philippians 3. He said, I want to know Christ. And it's not through Judaism. It's not through the law. It's not through these rituals or obedience to, this outward obedience to tradition and religion. I want to know Christ by fellowshipping with Him in His sufferings. That's how Paul pursued Christ. And that's how Christ calls us to pursue Him. Oh, what joy in obeying the Lord. And I'm thankful for my fellowship with, with the brother because 
helped me to understand what I taught last week in a, in a greater way, and it's always a joy when that happens. Well, now here we are in John 15. Uh, Elder Bible was telling me, what a passage. What a great section of Scripture. And that's like a way to like give a pastor pressure, because you don't want to do a disservice to a wonderful text. And it's true. I mean, John 15... Uh, John R. Mott says that this is a verse that saved him and sanctified him, a student volunteer missions movement. He says this is one of the greatest passages in all the New Testament, and I, I would agree. I mean, what a beautiful picture of the believer's relationship with Christ, with the Father, with believers, and with the world. So, I hope that you are, as you're listening to me, praying for me that I would do justice to this Great passage, John 15, 1, Christ says, I am the true vine. This is the last of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. Last of seven. From, from the beginning, our Lord said again, I am, I am, I am. Well, we're pointing back to Exodus 3 when Moses said, I need to know your name, God. If I'm going to go stand before the most powerful man in all the world, if I'm going to tell him to let my people go, I need to at least know your name so that I can represent you and call Pharaoh to obey you. What is your name? And God said, I am Yahweh. I am who I am. I am the eternal one. I am the existing one. And that, that's the name of God. That's capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament, the English version Every time you see four capital L-O-R-Ds, that's the name of God, Yahweh. And here comes Jesus Christ, and He says again and again, I am, John 6.35, the true bread of life. John 8.12, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the gate. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. The hired hand runs away, because why? He's a hired hand, but me, I am the good, I'm the coloss, the faithful, the beautiful shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 11.25, to Martha and Mary who are, who are crying and grieved and sorrowful with the loss of their brother, he tells them, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And then the last I am statement is found here in John 15.1 when Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. What does he mean there? What is he referring to? Why, is he, why did he all of a sudden uh, pick up this... Uh, a metaphor of vine and branches in addressing his disciples. Well, to kind of uh, uh, give you insight into the reasoning behind our Lord's statement here about I am divine, let me tell you a story about my gardening endeavor uh, many years ago. I kind of had a little midlife crisis when I turned 28. I don't know why. I'm 35 now. When I turned 28... I don't know, at 27, you know, it's a good year. 28 was a, I don't know why, I had a little midlife crisis. I started trying different things. Um, you know, I was a, always a rice and, you know, uh, Korean barbecue kind of guy. But I got into like raw, raw fish of all things, and I, I enjoyed it. And I got into uh, weird and strange hobbies. 
I tried, I think, running for the first time. Never enjoyed running, but still don't enjoy it. But I started it for the first time. And I kind of got into gardening, of all things, in a real weird way. I went, was, we're at in Target or Vons with my wife, and we didn't have a child, so I don't know, wanted to take care of something. So there's a $1.99 plant. Hey, buck 99 let's go for it. I bought this plant with my own, own money. I brought it home. And I started to water it and care for it. And you know what? That plant was like, it's growing like crazy. I was like, man, I have, this, I have a green thumb. I'm the man. Look at this plant. It was barely surviving at barns. And I, I, you know, I water it a few days a week and it's just growing. So I start you know, kind of, maybe this is my call, not calling, but what are my hobbies to be in life? So I was walking in a, a mall one day and there were a little kiosk selling bonsai trees, right? I think it was like 14.99 or something, or 12.99, and they were telling me it's pretty difficult. Bonsai trees are kind of, you know, you need to take care of it, water it right, take it outside, and you can't be in direct sunlight. And I was saying, don't worry about it. You know, I got a plant at home that <laughs> tells me I'm good with trees. So I bought this, you know, bonsai tree for 12.99, 14 bucks after tax, and I brought it home, and I start taking care of it. You know, you know, you see that movie Karate Kid, you know kind of neat, start trimming it and watering it, and I think I took it outside, and it start, starts to die on me, it starts withering, and I'm like, what's going on, I start watering it more, and putting it on, the, you know, out, outdoors, and it starts withering, so I start to panic, so I go to uh, uh, Home Depot and buy miracle Grow. right, I'm thinking, this thing's supposed to help plants grow, it's got like vitamins for plants, you know, like $3.99, okay, more money, but okay, I'll, I'm going to buy this miracle Grow, and I start pouring it into the bonsai tree, and it just died immediately. I mean, it just killed the plant. And I was like pretty distraught. What's wrong with this tree? I did everything possible to take care of this tree, and it dies on me. I kind of wanted to have a small party, gather my friends, and have a, like a, a tree-burning party, you know? Burn this tree, because I was so angry. Oh, what a fool, dumb story, but... In a, in, a, in a small way, this story illustrates uh, God's relationship with Israel. How God felt over the nation of Israel. We're going to turn to three passages before we get to John 15 to understand uh, why Christ talks about the true vine. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. Now in, in Isaiah chapter 5, God presents himself, the prophet presents God as an owner of a vineyard. This is about 100 years before, before exile of the southern kingdom. And there is a land that they're prospering. They're doing well as a nation. They're puffed with pride. And so Isaiah rebukes them and he portrays this, employs a story about a vineyard and its owner. And relays that to God and Israel. Chapter 1, we find out that uh, the loved one is the Lord Himself. And the vineyard is the nation of Israel. The vineyard was upon a fertile hill, verse 1. In verse 2, Isaiah tells us that God dug it up. He cleared it of stones. He planted this vineyard with the choicest of vines. He even built a watchtower in it, a tower of stones for watchmen, so that they would be able to protect the vineyard from wild animals. They even cut out a wine press as well. 
not only did the owner do everything possible to make the growing of good grapes easy, he also made preparations for the use of these good grapes. So he was prepared for the harvest, expecting a good harvest from his vineyard. In verse 2, the owner waited and waited. He looked for a crop of good grapes, but here is the climax, climax of the parable. It yielded only bad fruit. The grapes that were produced were not usable. They were rotten. They were bad. They were wild grapes. They were offensive, worthless grapes, fit only to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And so Isaiah says in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, you be the judge. You give us a verdict. You decide between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look forward to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? It is a rhetorical question asking the nation to judge for themselves on this matter. Saying, God, there's no blame, no fault, no responsibility on God's part. Because He did everything possible to produce good grapes. But why, oh why, did this nation, did this vineyard, nation of Israel, produce only bad fruit? Therefore, God says, verse 5, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove the fences, remove its hedge. And it shall be devoured by wild animals. I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned, shall not be hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. It will be overcome with weeds. I will also the command, I will also command the clouds so that they will not rain upon it. And then here is the explanation for the vineyard of the Lord. Verse 7 is, The house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked upon these two nations and he looked for justice, but instead he found bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but he only heard cries of distress. Why? Because there was no righteousness. God did everything for this nation. He looked for good fruit, but he only found worthless fruit. The vineyard failed to produce what God intended. Therefore, God was angry at Israel, angry at um, the people, for they, for they did not represent the care that God put into His people. Turn now to Jeremiah 2. Now, Jeremiah, Isaiah was about 100 years before the uh, exile, uh, the destruction of the southern kingdom. Jeremiah is an imminent like five years before the southern kingdom will be destroyed. And in the southern kingdom, there are all these prophets that were not sent by God, and they're saying, peace, peace, don't worry. Everything is okay. We're going to prosper. You know, God loves us. God is faithful to us. We're a special nation belonging to Yahweh. Have no fear. And Jeremiah is saying, no. Instead of peace, there will be destruction. God is angry at us. And God will judge us and He will use foreign nations to, to uh, work out His judgment and His wrath. And we'll be carried off into exile and the, the temple will be destroyed because of God's anger. In Jeremiah 2, 
the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth. Your love is a bride, how you follow me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was at that time holy to the Lord, the first fruit of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declared the Lord. Any nation that went against Israel lost. Verse 4, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless, worthlessness and became worthless? What did I do wrong? What fault was there in me that you would go astray from me? They did not say, verse 6, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things, but when you came in, you defiled my land. You made my heritage an abomination. Even the priests, the leaders of Israel, did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds, they transgressed against me. The prophets, they prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Verse 11, has a nation ever changed its gods? Look at all these pagan nations. They are loyal to their false gods. They are devoted to their idols. What is Israel doing? I am a true God. And you have changed me. You have exchanged me for worthless idols. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Even though they are not gods, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Verse 19, your evil will chastise you. Your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not serve. And on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Every place all over Israel you committed idolatry, worshiping foreign gods. Here is verse 21. I planted you as a choice vine. There it is. There is that figure again. I planted you as a choice vine. Holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine. There it is again. Isaiah used the figure of a vineyard and the owner. And Jeremiah, in rebuking the nation of Israel, says it again. God planted you as a choice seed, as a vine, and you produced no fruit for Him, only worthless grapes. The third passage is found in Matthew 21, verse 12. Now, Matthew 21 is the recording of our Lord's um, last days in Jerusalem after He returned to Jerusalem as the king sitting on a donkey, a humble, meek king. He comes into God's city, the city of God. And He does two things. 
first thing is, he, he makes a beeline to the temple. And he, and he does the same thing that he did the first time he entered Jerusalem. He cleans out the temple. He drives out the money changers and those selling animals. And zeal for God's house consumed him. And he said, this is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers. So he, he kicks everyone out in holy anger and righteous indignation. And he rebukes, he condemns the false religion of Israel. That's the first thing he, he does. The very next thing is very interesting. The blind, the deaf, the sick come to him and he heals them in the temple courts. So we see the gentleness of Christ. They see that he's righteously angry. They're not afraid of him. Those who are brokenhearted approach him. So he rebukes and he rejects the false religion of Israel. And then the second thing he does is he rejects the nation of Israel itself. Down in verse 18, early in the morning, he was hungry. He sees a fig tree by the road. He went up to it. Um, he found nothing on it, verse 19, except leaves. Uh, it was early April. Figs would sprout leaves, indicating that fruits had been produced. So if you were in uh, Asia Minor here or in, in Israel, in Jerusalem, and you saw a fig tree with leaves, it was a sign telling everyone uh, fruit has been produced. So he, our, our Lord goes to the street as leaves, but it's a false profession. It's a, it's a deception. It's a lie. It has leaves but no fruit. And in anger, he curses that tree and it says, may you never bear fruit again. Now, you know, what's, what's going on here? Lord, like, I would hate to be your waiter when you're hungry, right? You know, if I mistake your order, bring you wrong food, are you going to curse me? You're so, so sensitive and angry. What's going on? Our Lord wasn't, His anger was directed at Israel. It was a visual picture of God's condemnation and rejection of Israel as a nation. Again, Isaiah 5, Jeremiah 2, here in Matthew 21, by cursing of the fig tree, he was not angry at the tree. It was a prophecy of his judgment against this sinful nation who had betrayed God. And he says, you are forsaken. I'm going to the cross. and I'm going to start a new program. I'm going to start with a new people called the church. They were not a people. They will be my people. They were foreigners. They will be my priests. They will be living stones. And I will be the head of this new people, a royal priesthood called the church. And that is the background in which our Lord says to the disciples, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Israel, God planted it. It was God's vine. God's choice tree, but it failed. Our Lord is saying, I am replacing Israel. I am the true, eternal, divine, complete vine. This replacement and this superiority of Jesus to Israel is clearly seen in the Bible. Replacement of Jesus with Israel. In Exodus 4.22 
God says that Israel is my firstborn son. This is the message that Moses is to deliver to Pharaoh, that Israel is God's firstborn son. When Jesus was born, Matthew 3.17, God said, This is my son, whom I love. Israel indeed is my son, but Jesus is my only son, whom I truly love. In Genesis 13.15, Israel is the offspring, the seed which will enjoy the physical blessings of God's covenant made with Abraham. God promised Abraham all this land. Look around, Abraham. I will give all of this land to you and to your offspring. Genesis 13.15. In Galatians 3.16, tells us that Jesus Christ is the seed and the final seed through which all mankind will receive not the physical promises of the Abrahamic covenant, but through which all men who believe in Christ will receive the spiritual blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. In Isaiah 41, 44.1, 44.21, Israel is called corporately God's servant. Isaiah 41.8, you, O Israel, my servant. 44.1, now listen, O Jacob, my servant. Isaiah 42.21, remember these things, O Jacob, my servant. God called Israel his servant, but Jesus has replaced Israel. Isaiah 53, my suffering servant, my true servant. The culmination is in John 15. Israel was the vine, but now it's cast off. It is forsaken. And Jesus says, now I am the true vine. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be saved, if you wanted to enter God's kingdom, you had to have some kind of tie to corporate Israel. You had to convert become a proselyte, you know, be circumcised, go through the rituals, and become a Jew yourself, and enter into this nation to find favor in God and to enter God's kingdom. Our Lord is saying, no more. You don't have to be a Jew anymore. I am the true vine. And if anyone abides in me, you will bear fruit. If you want to come into my kingdom, you want to find God's favor, it is no longer through Israel. It is through me. So our Lord, first of all, explains His role and His relationship with believers. And then in the second part of verse 1, our Lord tells us the role and two works of the Father. Our Lord says, My Father is a vine dresser. Greek word is georgos. Compound word. First word is ge. It's earth. Ergos is from ergon, which means work. And it means a worker of the earth, or earth tiller, or a farmer, or a gardener. Our Lord is saying, I'm the true vine. And my father, how would I describe him? How would I explain him? What is his role with the believer, with all of you? My father, I get it. He's the gardener. He's the farmer. And believers, we're branches. And you know what God does? Our Father, who is the gardener, verse 2, He does two things. The first thing He does is every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, He takes away. He takes away once for all. 
pointing to the future judgment. The farmer will come to his vineyard and he will go to and fro all the aisles and look at every branch. In every branch that has no fruit, he will take, cast out, tear apart, and he will take away to be burned, thrown away forever. That's the first work of the gardener. This has been stated before in the Bible, the New Testament. John the Baptist in Matthew 3.10, when he saw the people, when he saw the Pharisees, uh, he said the axe is already at the root of the trees. The Pharisees, you know, he said in Luke, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, they're entering God's kingdom ahead of you. That's how far off you are. Right? The, 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 the whores, the prostitutes, Right? I mean, they're not called the drug dealers. I mean, these guys who commit heinous sins, they're ahead of you before the Pharisees. So, John the Baptist sees these Pharisees and he says, you, need to, you really need to repent because God has found you and you have no fruit. The axe is at the root of your tree. God's about to cut you off right now. At this instant, not only you, but every tree that does not bear fruit, produce good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. You know, the debatable passage. Uh, turn with me there. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. A big debate. Are these believers who have lost their salvation? Are they false Christians? Are they uh, true Christians? Verses 7 and 8 explains what's, what's happening here. Verse 4 through 6, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 6, 4, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming, coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, it is impossible, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. What's going on here? Verse 7 and 8, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessings of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless, worthless, and it is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be, be burned. So there's two land. One, they both receive rain. One produces good fruit. Glory to God. It's great. The other, right next to it, there is only, produces only thorns and thistles. That land will be set apart and will be burned. That's what God will do. It happens in every church, in every a Christian movement in the history of the world. There is preaching of the word, faithful prayer for the people, faithful discipleship and shepherding afterwards. And one person will grow and respond by bearing fruit. person sitting right next to that person will bear no fruit. And God warns to that such a person, He will take you away. My Father, the gardener, will cut you off and throw you into the fire. Jonathan Edwards talking about such people during the Great Awakening. There were so many who initially with joy embraced the Word of God, 
But after a while, they didn't produce fruit. They just produce worthless fruit. He said, quote, What at first appears to be repentance and faith, yet these influences fall short of inward saving renewal. People under such influences may, like Herod Antipas, do many things. Mark 6.20 They may, as the stony ground hearers, receive the word with joy. They might, according to Hebrews 6.5, taste the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. They might, for a moment, escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But for all of this, prove in the end to be nothing more than unregenerate, temporary professors. So God will take such men, discern them rightly, cast them aside. This truth is so important. Who is a Christian? Who is a believer? How do you know if you're truly trusting Christ and you are a possessor of eternal life? A believer is one who produces fruit in keeping with one's faith. A false believer, sitting in the same seats, listening to the same messages, involved in the same kinds of meetings and activities and, and everything, same kind of lingo, and yet he or she has no fruit. For our time remaining, let me share with you in employing Jonathan Edwards Four things that sometimes pass for fruit, but are not. You know, four leaves, right? Four leaves. Four things that sometimes pass for fruit, but they are not. Number one, it's assurance of salvation. Believing that you are saved. Having confidence, fully assured that you are a Christian, doesn't mean you are a Christian. Matthew seven seventeen through 23 our Lord said there, every good tree bears good fruit. The fruit reveals the root. I see this illustration all the time. You know, if you say you're a lemon tree and you produce apples, I don't care what sign you have, you're an apple tree. Right? If you say you're an apple tree, but you produce lemons, you're a lemon tree. If the fruit reveals the root. If you say you're a Christian, but you're producing fruits of selfishness and pride and and worldliness, and friendship with this world, and, and all kinds of sin, it doesn't matter what you say, no matter what kind of assurances you have, the fruit reveals a root. And our Lord tells us in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. But only the, he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In fact, he prophesies in verse 23, Two, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? Do we not in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Do we not serve in your church? And Christ will say, Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These are men and women who had assurance of salvation. No doubt that they were Christians well, until they met Christ. And Christ said, no, you're not. Away from me, you workers of iniquity. Second thing that sometimes is passed for fruit, but, but it's not, is this it's pride and self-confidence 
in the Christian life. Right? A pride and self-confidence in fruits of the Christian life. Like, yeah, I'm a Christian. Look, I'm reading the Bible. Look at how long I pray. Man, you, James, if you only knew how many people, how many times I've gone out witnessing, or how meticulously I take notes, or you know, how just you know, fervently I share in flock, or you know, I'm going to Bible college. Right? I mean, if you only knew, I'm, I'm, because of these things, I'm a Christian. Let me read to you what... Um, Edward said, For such false professors, an abiding sense of sin is missing. All gracious affections are broken-hearted affections. Let me read that again. All gracious affections are broken-hearted affections in a true Christian. For repentance in genuine Christians is experienced for his whole life. True saints are spoken of not only as those who have mourned for sin, past tense, but true Christians are described as those who daily mourn over sin, Matthew 5.4. Repentance is not a past act, it's a lifestyle. Every day, because of our sinfulness, we are repentant. That is the state of our hearts. We are perpetually broken. Accordingly, those who lack gracious affections have no reverential fear. They are, quote, familiar with God in worship. They are bold. They are forward. They're noisy. They're boisterous with men. So we're talking about some who have this kind of cheesy kind of familiarity with God. They're presumptuous in their approach to God. In worship, in ministry, and in fellowship, they are confident in who they are. So they are boisterous, they are loud, they speak with confidence. And Edward says, that is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. He continues, there is always a true balance missing from the seeming grace of an unregenerate professor of Christ. The real Christian, enjoying assurance of salvation, has holy boldness, but he also has less of self-confidence. And he is modest. He is less apt than others to be shaken in his faith, but he is more apt than others to be moved with solemn warnings. He is more apt to be moved by God's frowns. He has the firmness to comfort, but the softest heart. He's richer than others, but poorest in spirit. He is the tallest and strongest saint, but he is the least and tenderest child among them. What a beautiful picture of a Christian. He's the strongest believer, yet he's the most tender, he's the most weak, because his confidence is not in himself. Third thing that passes for fruit, but it is not Spiritual experiences, emotions. Emotions are very deceptive. When we, when we sing or hear the Word of God or we minister or read the Bible, we feel something. We go, I must be a Christian because I feel, you know, sadness. I feel joy. I feel grief. This emotion proves that I'm a true Christian. You know, I've prayed the prayer. You know, no one is a Christian by praying that sinner's prayer. Anybody can pray that prayer. It's like a formula. You prayed this and you're a Christian. 
That's absurd. You're a Christian by believing in Christ. Not by repeating some kind of formula or by walking down an aisle or being baptized or being confirmed by the church. All these things often pass for true fruit, but they are not. They're only leaves. And the final one is involvement in ministry, involvement in religious activity, but without personal holiness. Personal holiness. Paul describes such people in 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5. He, he describes them as, as people having a form of godliness, but they have no power. What, what power is he talking about? He's talking about the power of the gospel to grant holiness in a sinner's life. So he concludes in verse 5, they have no power. How do you know they have no power? And he describes them in verses 2 through 4. They are lovers of themselves. That's, that's natural man. Every man loves himself. A Christian, because of the power of the gospel, we no longer love ourselves. We love Christ. Well, obviously, these men have not experienced the power of the gospel because they're still lovers of themselves. They're lovers of money. They live for money. They're boastful. They're proud. They're abusive. They're disobedient to their parents. Look at their home life, and it's obvious. There's no holiness. And how they speak and treat their parents. They're ungrateful, they're unholy, they're without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Yes, they might be pastors, right? They might be, you know, Bible say leaders in this church at Ephesus. They might be flock shepherds. They might have all this. They might have prayed the prayer, walked down the aisles. They might have been baptized. They might have had these spiritual experiences. They might have talked to angels. They might have had visions and dreams. But look at their lives. Look at their fruit. They're full of sin. No righteousness, no holiness. That tells us that they have a form of godliness. But no power because they're lacking personal holiness. That's what Edward said. The love and pursuit of holiness is the enduring mark of the true Christian. Though the Holy Spirit may influence the unregenerate in many ways, yet He never in any of His influences communicates Himself to them outside of holiness. While the experiences of a young Christian may be like a confused chaos because they're young, even a baby Christian will follow holiness. And true religious affections differ from false affections in that the true one is always related to holiness. Natural men have no sense of the goodness and excellency of holy things, at least for their holiness, but for the saints, holiness is the most amiable and sweet thing that is to be found in heaven and earth. In Edward's own short manuscript notes on directions for judging persons, whether they're Christians or not, he wrote, quote, See to it that they long after holiness. And all their experiences increase their longing for holiness. See to it whether their experiences make them long after perfect freedom from sin and after those things wherein holiness 
consists. Why? Because for the Christian, holiness is the beauty of God, whom He has been brought to know. And having now a principle of holiness in His own nature, He delights in God and seeks to be like God in this way. There is holy breathing and panting after the Spirit of God to increase holiness, which is, is as natural to a holy nature as breathing is to the body. The true believer loves God. And in the first place, the first thing the believer loves about God is the beauty of His holiness. Therefore, instead of being something separate from salvation, holiness is the purpose of salvation once a person is renewed a life of holiness is instantly begun and a transformation of nature is continued and carried on to the end of life until it is brought to perfection and glory these are four things that pass for fruit they are not if you're counting on these things I don't know if it's bad. I think it's good news. I think we ought to hear the Word of God rather than these senseless shepherds who teach the perversions of their own mind. It is bitter medicine, but it's good for our souls, good for our spiritual state to know the truth so that we might strive to bear fruit in keeping with our profession of faith. Let me share with you five true fruits that point toward true faith. Five fruits that are true, that are evidences of true faith in Christ. Number one, utter humility and brokenness over personal and specific sins. Utter humility and brokenness over personal and specific sins. A definite and growing sense of complete unworthiness. And Peter experienced this in Luke 5, 8, when Christ performed a miracle in His presence. How did Peter respond? He said, Away from me, Lord. God, Lord, I cannot be in Your presence. You need to depart immediately because I am, Peter said, a sinful man. That is the first sign of genuine faith. He or she readily recognizes one's own depravity and considers it completely just of God to send him or her into hell to be separate from God forever. God, leave me. I am not worthy of you. Send me to hell. Cast me aside because I am a sinner. In the words of Robert Bolton, a man must feel himself in misery before he will go about to find a remedy. That's why this is so important. Humility comes before salvation. A man must find himself sick before he will seek a physician. A man must realize he is in prison before he will seek a pardon. A sinner must be weary of his wicked ways before he will cry out to Jesus Christ. He must be sensible of his spiritual poverty beggary and slavery under the devil before he thirsts kindly for heavenly righteousness and willingly take up Christ's 
sweet and easy yoke. He must be cast down, confounded, condemned, cast away, and lost in himself before he will look about for the Savior. Second, mark, second true fruit it's a new heart and a new life. John 3, you must be born again. St. Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Brand new. The old is gone. The new has come. They are new not only without, but within. They are sanctified throughout in spirit, soul, body. All things have passed away. The new has come. They have new hearts. They have new eyes. They have new ears. They have new tongues. They have new hands. They have new feet. They have new conversations. They have new habits, new practices. They walk in the newness of life and continue to do so to the end of life. Why? Because he or she is a new creation through and through. Third mark of true, of true salvation is new desires. Holy affections, as Edwards called them. He or she is now a possessor of an intense and passionate zeal for Christ. They have an ardent uh, uh, compulsion for the Lord. All Christians. I beg you to read. My next pastor's corner will be on David's brain or his diary of missionary to the Indians two centuries ago. And Adoniram Judson's uh, just adoration of Brainerd because Brainerd taught him to adore God more. You know, you, you, you must, once in your life, read this book because of his passion and love for Christ. And Edwards wrote this book or compiled his diary and gave it to the church not to tell us what a missionary looks like, but to reveal to us this is what a Christian is. This is how a Christian lives. This is the affection given by the Holy Spirit to every single child of God. Well, let, me, let me use Edwards again and share with you his testimony after he became a believer. He said, My longings after God and holiness were much increased. Pure and humble, holy and heavenly, Christ appeared extremely desirable to me. I felt the burning desire to be in everything a complete Christian and conformed to the blessed image of Christ and that I might live in all things according to the pure, sweet, and blessed rules of the gospel. I had an eager thirsting after pro progress in these things which put me upon pursuing and pressing after them. It was my continual strife day and night and constant inquiry how I should be more holy and live more holily and more becoming a child of God and a disciple of Christ. I now sought an increase of grace and holiness and a holy life with much more earnestness than ever I sought grace before I had it. I used to be continually examining myself and studying and contriving for likely ways and means how I should live holily with far greater diligence and earnestness than ever I pursued anything in my life. End quote. That was his experience after understanding the gospel and being saved. And that's the experience of all true Christians. That's true fruit.
Number four, fourth, fourth, true fruit of genuine faith, private and secret devotion to God. Private and secret devotion to God. Pharisees did everything for men to, to be seen, to be seen by men. And Christ said they have received their reward. <coughs> Throughout the world, men are praying. You know, all religions, they go to church or a temple or a mosque to hear their holy scriptures and do their good deeds. And they cast about how much they love God and publicly are holy to Him. But a mark of true faith is that in secret, in private, he or she loves the Lord. He's devoted to Him and is in prayer. Edwards again that a true Christian doubtless delights in religious fellowship and Christian conversation and finds much to affect his heart in it, but he all the more delights to retire from all mankind to converse with God. True religion disposes persons to be alone in solitary places for holy meditation and prayer. True grace delights in secret converse with God because the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To be with God in private is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodation here. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives or children or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. And then the final fruit that reveals true faith is endurance and perseverance. Endurance and perseverance. A man came to George Whitfield, arguably one of the greatest evangelists the history of the church, and he told Whitfield, I figured out a way how to tell a true Christian from a false Christian uh, when they profess Christ for the first time. And Edward said, wow, that's great. That's a lesson I have yet learned. Because there are so many stony ground hearers which receive the word with joy, and then it is choked out by thorns and cares of life that they are wither away. I don't have, I don't know that truth. He said, I have determined to suspend my judgment till I know the tree by its fruit. So when Whitfield came upon sudden conversions, he would say, I will wait. I will wait until time passes. The final mark of true faith is endurance and perseverance. Second Peter 1.10 that's what Peter called the believers. To be eager to make their calling and election sure by following with following Christ with endurance. Romans fifteen four, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Philippians two twelve. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue, endure, persevere to work out, to live out your salvation with holy fear and trembling. 
Or you might say today, well, Pastor James, what do I do? I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. I look at these things that you have taught me today, and I'm afraid. I don't know what to do. Well, it's simple. Trust in Christ. Cry out to Him. Ask God with the most sincerest prayer you can muster up. Ask God to save you. Hold on to the promises of the Bible and believe in Jesus Christ instead of your own righteousness, instead of your own will or pride. Abandon your pride and all humility. Hope in Christ alone and trust in Him. And Jesus said, He promised He will save you. You're saying, that's it? What, is there anything else? Well, that's what faith is. That's what trusting is. If you want anything else, then you're not trusting Christ. Trusting Christ means abandoning all human effort and trusting only in Christ and His finished work on the cross. Christ promises you, and I promise and the authority given to me by Christ that He will do it. You believe in Christ, and He will give you a new heart, new life. You'll be a new creation. He'll give you holy affections. He'll produce fruit in your life that will prove to you that you are indeed a child of God. If only you will take that step and believe in Christ, trust in Him, repent of your sins, He will do it. With every eye closed, every head bowed, let's give you a few moments to privately, before God, who is the heart searcher, knowing all your thoughts, knowing our hearts, May you respond to Him in prayer. Call out to Him. O oh Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought us again to the valley of vision, where we dwell in the heights with thee and in the depths of our own sins. But it is in this valley of humiliation we see you clearly, we can apprehend it's the beauty of your holiness, beauty of your glory. It is in this valley, God, of our sins we see how beautiful and sweet you are how glorious and majestic you are and that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Oh Lord, what foolishness for us to come before you with our own righteousness. Lord, we pray for those who do not know you. Oh Lord, those branches that are not abiding in the vine, therefore they're not producing fruit in keeping with repentance time of casting away, a time of being thrown into the fire has not yet come. Therefore, there is still the opportunity for them to be grafted in. And Lord, we pray to you, we cry to you and ask you that the Holy Spirit would graft these people, save them, give them new hearts, give them faith to believe, open their eyes, Lord, cause them to hear the truth, repent of sins, 
and to receive this inheritance, the blessings of salvation, and that you'll be glorified by the fruit that they will produce in their lives. For the believers that are here, O Lord, that you would prune us, that you would cut away everything that would hinder us, Lord, every sin, everything that saps our strength and our ardency for you, you would cut it away that we might produce more fruit for your glory. We thank you, God, that you are our vine, that you are the source of our life and our fruitfulness. May we, with love and affection, abide in you. In Jesus' name, amen.